Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 255. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 255 you're listening to. My guest today is Stephen Gillis, who's a drummer, producer, engineer, and mixer. He works out of Transient Sound, his studio located in the Lakeview area, which is on the north side of Chicago, where he has worked with bands such as Los Lobos and Naked Raygun. And fans of the band Filter might also recognize Stephen's name because he is the former drummer of Filter. So... We're going to have a discussion about Stephen's journey coming up here shortly. So, Stephen Gillis, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about power outages and fires. Mm. All right. I'm also going to tell you about how I managed to get this last podcast out, episode 254, in spite of the fact that I had no power for a few days. For those of you that aren't living in California or unaware of our power and fire situation, you might see the news and you might see that California just seems to be on fire all the time. In the case of Northern California, where I live, what has happened is, and I'm just going to relay this as I have heard it, I don't know all the facts. I'm going to tell you the little I do know. It's becoming a regular occurrence where our utility company, Pacific Gas and Electric, also known as PG&E, will preemptively shut the power off in certain parts of the state that they control the power and, you know, the, the electricity and the gas. So they'll shut the power off. Why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because we are experiencing a new level of wind events where the wind is blowing 70, 80, 90, 100 miles per hour, blowing power lines down, transformers, lines, poles, you know, the infrastructure, and causing fires. You might ask, well, we might get some wind events or, or weather events in the area I live. Why does that not happen to me? Well, as I'm to understand it, PG&E, instead of paying for infrastructure upgrades to combat these changes, uh, like burying the power lines or doing a better job at securing the power lines or trimming trees around power lines, they chose instead to pay out the profits to their shareholders in the form of, of course, dividends to their, to their shareholders. You might also know about some fires that were started as a result of failure failures in PG&E's equipment. It was the Paradise Fire that was kind of the tipping point. And that's the story of a whole town basically burning to the ground. Horrible situation. People dying, homes being burnt, businesses being burnt, real heavy duty damage. Okay, so we lose power. We have these crazy wind events. Climate change is in full swing, right? I have lived here in Northern California since 1988. And the other day when the wind blew, I had never, ever, ever seen the wind blow like that. I was scared. I thought these trees are gonna, that are surround my house are gonna come flying down. It's an insane time. Everything's much drier than it normally is. The wind is blowing like crazy. It's just ripe for a fire. So the power goes out and the power, this is the second time the power has been preemptively shut off in the area that I live. And fortunately or unfortunately, PG&E does give you somewhat of a heads up to say, we're shutting the power off. 
Knowing that, and knowing that it could be out for some time, of course, I'm panicking because I've got to get the podcast out. I know, first world problems, right? What I did was, is I just put the show together for episode 254 and uploaded. So I got the show up. You have to prep all of the mechanisms that allow you to get the show. And I did it, uploaded it ahead of time. So by Saturday afternoon, it was ready to go for you. And it was primed so that it would hit your inboxes and your podcast aggregators at a particular time. And it was all scheduled, which was great. So thank goodness for that. That's why you got the show on time and without without failure. Hoops you got to jump through. Now, we lost power Saturday night, 10 p.m. We didn't get it back until 4 p.m. Monday. Originally, they told us we weren't going to get it back till 6 p.m. on Tuesday. Also, we had a fire here in Lafayette, California, where I live, and they sent out evacuation notices to the few people that had cell service. That was scary, you know? I looked around the studio and I said, okay, what do I really need right now to move forward? So I grabbed the things that I needed. You know, obviously we grabbed clothes and stuff and things we need for the dog, but I also had several bags with microphones and interfaces and computers and everything that I could throw together and know that in a moment's notice, I could pop all of that into a, into a car and go. Hard drives included, of course. Once again, I'm bringing this up to you. You really don't know how panicky you can get when you realize this, you know, the place you're at and all your gear and the content that you have created or been a part of for your clients, for a thing like a podcast, all of this stuff could go up in flames any minute. So it, I've had, you know, a few scares like this where I really start to reevaluate all of the mechanisms that are in place to make sure that hard drives are backed up. And, you know, we've talked about that a million times. Just to reiterate, make sure you have a couple copies on hand of whatever it is you're working on locally. Make sure you have something backed up to the cloud. You know, I'm a big proponent of Backblaze. There, there's a, I'll put a link in the show notes once again, but there's always a link there on the uh, WCA Recommends part of the Working Class Audio site. Folks, make sure your stuff is ready to go. If you have a ton of stuff and you want to make sure that's insured, make sure it's insured. You know, I've talked about Joe Monterello million times you can go with Joe and his program or you can go with uh, other programs just make sure you're covered and if you know not having insurance is is your thing that's fine too make sure you have money in the bank to cover what it is you're doing just make sure that all this stuff's protected because man that was some freaky shit when they sent out that evacuation order and and we thought okay we're we're not being evacuated yet at least our part of town but I thought that fire's five miles away, and if they don't put it out, it could make its way to me very rapidly, especially with the winds blowing. So all I'm saying is, is be prepared, know where things are at. If you're disorganized, you're gonna lose stuff in, in catastrophic events. And the more organized you are, then when somebody sends you an emergency text and says, you gotta get out of your home right now, you think, okay, certain things are in, place to protect certain assets. If you know where the hard drives are that you need to grab, or you know, uh, hey, that stuff's covered, it's in the cloud, I'm not gonna worry about it, let's just get out with the family and the pets and get out of here safely, then cool. Just consider that everything could change in a moment's notice for you. 
you got to be prepared for it. So get it together. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Stephen Gillis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You were a referral from our mutual friend, Mary Masaryk. So happy to have you on and thanks to Mary for that. Let's just get started. You are located in Chicago. You're on the north side. Yeah, it's, it's Lakeview. We're like roughly one mile due west of Wrigley Field, actually. Ah, so well, that's convenient. Yeah, well... If you go to Cubs games, I haven't really been to one in a long time, but... Yeah, if you go to Cubs games. <laughs> I'm not going to turn this into a political conversation, but I'm not going to any Cubs games anytime soon. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, so how did you wind up in that part of town? And this is where, of course, Transient Sound is located, your studio that you share with another individual. Yeah, Vijay Telesnayak. 
He is my partner. There's also a third owner, uh, Jim Sywek, but he's kind of, he doesn't really work here, but me and Vijay do the lion's share of the work here. Okay. And how did you guys wind up in that particular part of town? What made you choose that part of town? I mean, anybody that's tried to build a studio has gone through the same thing where you have a criteria list and then you have to weed out all of the possible spaces and it just comes down to so many issues. But for us, it was the right amount of square footage and it was on the street level. So it's easy in and out. And we, back then when we built the studios about 13 years ago, we just couldn't afford like a building to buy a building and convert it and fix it. It just, it was just way too expensive. So we were looking for a place that we could do long-term, a long-term lease that wouldn't kill us and have a landlord that was supportive of what we were trying to do. And so after seeing, I don't know how many places we saw, we decided on this place. When you go through that process, do you use a broker or do you just go on your own and hunt people down? We kind of just did it on our own. Yeah. I don't remember using a broker at that point. I mean, we're, we're both from here. So we're very aware of the city and the layout and all like the possible locations. And this strip that we're on here is like an old warehouse district strip. That's all kind of been converted. We didn't want anything that was developed. It was just, we wanted just raw space. And that's what this offered because we built everything inside that raw space, rooms within a room, basically. So it didn't have to look pretty at all. And were there challenges in building the place, external challenges like from the city or the landlord or any other individual? No, not really. I mean, we told the landlord what we were up to and, you know, he was fine with it. We didn't expect it to take us a year to build it, (laughs) but it did. Wow. But it was just like full-on construction for a year. So me and Vijay rolled our sleeves up and did a lot of the work ourselves. But we had a builder and we had that rely on certain outside people, obviously. So with technical matters, the HVAC system, all the electrical, we have our own transformer, so on and so forth. You have your own transformer. Explain that to me. Actually, it's funny. I was just talking to a friend about this the other day. We had two different panels from ComEd coming in here. One was a three-phase power panel. Mm -hmm. So we decided that would be the most efficient power to use for all of our isolated ground power. We've got an isolated ground panel, so we've got all these different outlets and they're all in their own breaker. And so to ensure that it was really clean, to ensure that that it was really consistent, we could have bought Furman power supplies, right? But I wasn't convinced that that was gonna have enough of a, just not as good as, as this transformer we ended up putting out in the hallway. But the thing was a pain in the butt. It's like 250 pounds, you know? And originally, we, uh, the guy was working with us mounted on the wall, and then we he flipped it on. It was like shaking the whole control room. <laughs> so we had, to, we had to move it off. It took like two days to get it there. You have no idea how what a nightmare this was to put it in. But we ended up pouring a concrete slab in the alley, like in this little wood box. And then we brought that in, and then we mounted the transformer on that and then isolated away from the wall. So it works great. But it's just on 24-7. The power goes through that, gets cleaned. It's a transformer and is distributed through the studio for all of our audio equipment and so on and so forth. Wow. That's quite an operation. Does the cold affect its performance? No, not at all. It's just constantly on 24-7. No, the cold doesn't affect it at all. I don't think. Okay. How long of a lease did you negotiate for? Well, originally it was 10 years, but I've gone back there like every couple of years and renewed it. So it's <laughs> like every couple of years, it's like a new 10-year lease basically. Yeah. I just want to make sure we never get to the end of it or close to the end of it. And he's, the landlord's been cool with that too. So, so far we've been, we've been real lucky with that. And for the audience, obviously there will be a link in the show notes for you to, to check out the studio. I'd like to pause for a minute and go back a bit Did you grow up in Chicago? Yeah, well, I grew up in Evanston, which is just north of Chicago. It's just the first suburb just north of Chicago. So I've been, yeah, I've been in the area for the most part, except for college and 
other things. And you started out as a drummer primarily, is that right? I mean, that's my, still, that's, you know, I'm a full-time musician. Um, that's been my career. So I kind of have two careers going here. This, you know, my day job is here in the studio and then I play gigs at night. I don't really tour anymore. I used to do a lot of that, but I kind of stopped that when my daughter was born. And also this studio has gotten busy. It's just, it's hard to leave. I do all my gigs are essentially locally, except for I might do a, a fly date in and out real quick in a in day or two. As a drummer, you've got some real interesting people underneath your, uh, not your discography, your, your drumming discography, <laughs> we'll say. Yeah. In my monologue, I've already let people know that you played with Filter, mm -hmm. but you've also played with Chuck Berry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, wow. <laughs> How does one go to play with <laughs> Chuck Berry? Well, I mean, if anybody knows anything about Chuck Berry, they know that he never had a band. The only band that he's really had that's been steady was his daughter and some local guys down in St. Louis, and they would play at his club down there. I think they were doing once a month or something like that for years. And that was about as steady as it ever got for a band for him. So everywhere he traveled, he used pickup bands. And so I got a call to be in the band when he came and played in Chicago about nine years ago or something like that. And you've also played with Buddy Guy, of course. Well, I haven't been on his gig, but I've played with bands and then he's played with us at his uh, club. I got it. Yeah. So on, a, on numerous occasions. Are there things that you've learned as a drummer, whether musical or business-wise music business, that you've brought to the world of audio and being an audio professional that have you think have been beneficial? That's like kind of a can of worms question to me because to <laughs> me, everything that we do with audio really is 100% dependent on the music, on the content, on the artist, on the art. And then what we do is we're just facilitating that, whether it's capturing the most in-focus sound or the most manipulated sound or the most produced mm. sounding product or the most hands-off sounding. It's, it's all catering to what the, the music needs. So as a musician, I just think that that's the most important thing that we do, that we can do for an artist. I would think that being an active player now, even even as you have the studio, really informs how you interact with other musicians compared to, say, an engineer who doesn't play an instrument or who just hasn't played in years mm -hmm. and has been more focused on, on nothing but audio. Would you agree with that, that how you interact with people and how you treat sessions is fully informed by being a drummer? Well, I mean, I want to start off by saying there's plenty of engineers and producers who've made unbelievable records that aren't necessarily performing musicians. So I'm not sure that those things have to be one and the same, but I don't know anything different. That's been my only career is, is being a musician and then about 20 years ago falling into this. You know, right. in conjunction with that. So I don't really know the difference. I mean, I know that most of the clients we get, Vijay and I, come to us because they know us as musicians and we play together or they know of us or they trust us in some way, you know? In that sense, it, it's lent a little bit of a different perspective, I think, for us. But I guess if you're talking about the, like the language speaking with musicians, yeah, I think if something goofy going on harmonically that maybe somebody's not picking up and you're able to point that out, or if the G string on the guitar is flat in relationship with the rest of the guitar and nobody's picking that up but your ears hearing it because you're used to hearing that you can point those things out and i think musically you, you can interact with the musicians in a way i think that can be helpful if they want that sometimes they, you can tell like you shouldn't say anything you know it's fine but i think that when you do have a chance to say something it's it comes from sort of an informed place i think there's like subtle cues i think that you would understand that others wouldn't possibly when i work with like a contained band 
I do have to say, I'm, I never rush anything. Like I, I let the musicians go through their process, you know, like sometimes it's, it's tough for somebody to get something out of their fingers or, or whatever. And I do empathize with them in the sense that being in a studio is kind of weird if you're not used to being in a studio. And so you kind of got to just let it unfold in a way where people start to feel comfortable and confident. I mean, a lot of the musicians that come in here are just ringers. They're just amazing. They, they don't, they could do it in a hailstorm and be fine. You know, <laughs> it's like no problem. But then some singer songwriters or self-contained bands don't have as much experience. I agree with you. I, I empathize with, with that and being a musician and you're vulnerable in the studio. And like, I, I'm just always kind of like, it's okay. We're going to get it done. It's all going to happen. It's fine. How did you get into audio? What was the first thing that triggered you thinking, hmm, I could do this professionally? Oh, man. Well, I mean, I always loved playing on other people's records in the studio. I loved being in the studio. Practically speaking, what happened? I mean, I got a Mac laptop and a Digi 002. I didn't have the money to afford a tape machine and all that. Really, technology shifted and I was able to build like a little home studio. When I was in Filter and we were making Tile of Record, we had a studio in Chicago on North Avenue where we did the whole record there, essentially. And there was a engineer in from L.A. that was with us the whole time to make that record named Ray DeLeo, who's a super sweet guy, great engineer. And I learned a lot of stuff from him. And it kind of just, I fell into this place where, you know, it'd be cool to like maybe be able to track some drums at the house and this and that. So it kind of organically started with me tracking some drums on somebody's project at home to, oh, hey, can you record the whole project? To, can you produce this project? So on and so forth. And then my partner, Vijay, had a home studio as well. And we started working on productions together. And you, know, you could just drag your hard drive over to the other guy's house. <laughs> you could work on projects like that together. And he had a piano in his house. So if we needed to do acoustic piano, we'd do it there. I'd track the drums at my house. We'd do vocals or guitars, either or my studio here. But, and we started doing some, some records that I'm pretty proud of together you know, just on our own. And so that it's just, I think the technology shift at that time, like around 98, 97, 98, I think that kind of changed things for me. It's amazing really what a gateway that becomes to all the rest of it that we get involved in. Yeah, it was 100% a gateway. I mean, what's interesting is I think back to that time, um, not to talk too much about gear, but there was four mic pre's on that 002, because at the filter studio, we had some Neve pre's and some other pre's, and I was kind of used to hearing things sound really good, you know? <laughs> and then, so I remember the first time using this 002 and thinking, man, these mic pre's are horrible. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I was like, well, that, so there is like a little bit of a, a blockade here. Uh, I bought the Apogee Rosetta and I hooked that up light pipe. And then I bought a couple really nice pre's. This guy, Johnny K, is a famous producer. I was working on a project over at his studio and I told him about my rig. He's like, the first pre's you should buy are two Neve 9098s and two Distressors. So I took his word for it and I went out and got it and I was super happy. I had two really good mic pre's with EQ and two really good compressors. <laughs> yeah. You're a studio owner, so this might be difficult. Do you think it's been difficult to manage or resist the temptation to overbuy and go into debt for gear? Oh man, see, it's, it's weird. I'm a little different in that respect because I'm not a gearhead. I feel like we have everything you could ever need. It's like at some point you get to that threshold where, all right, I've got a bunch of nice pre's. I'm mixing on an SSL. At some point, I mean, I guess you go on and on and on and on forever. But for us, there's like a certain level of things that, that we knew we need to have. And now that we're there, we don't really buy new gear that often over here. I mean, I upgraded the Pro Tools rig in here a few years ago, but that was 
painful, very painful. <laughs> I think it was painful for a lot of people. Oh my God. I had to get a new computer, get the, you know, that remote thing that the car goes in, the whatever you call it, the chassis, chassis and whatever. I couldn't avoid yeah. it though. It's almost like preparing for surgery or going into surgery, like to have a hip replacement. Dude, it sucks. <laughs> it's, it's awful. So other than that, you know, we bought some new mics, but they're not new. They're all vintage. We got a vintage C24 a couple years ago. And I mean, the stuff that we've gotten that we've acquired since we initially built this, we were all like, there was an old guy that had a collection of all this stuff and we got a bunch of vintage microphones and some more U87s and so on and so forth. Well, so how did you two decide that forming a proper studio was, was the way to go? And were there, obviously there was extensive discussion, but what about planning? I mean, what, what was the goal before you started the studio? We had been having some, I would consider a little bit of success, you know, in our home studios working together. We had a record that we produced for an artist that was selected by James Taylor for the New York Times as one of the top five unsigned artists of the year. And wow. so that kind of gave us some confidence. Hey, maybe we're doing something right here. But we did. We talked about it for a year. I mean, he and I were on a steady Sunday night gig and on the breaks, we would always talk about it. So we, we mulled this over for a year before we did anything. And then I think the, the main reason was, is we wanted to continue on with what we were doing, but in sort of a scenario that wasn't like a million dollar studio situation that was to totally blown up, like more of like an extension of what we had at home, but with not a lot of limitations, like the least amount of limitations that we could afford. And honest, I wanted to mix on an SSL. <laughs> I really, really wanted to mix on an SSL because I just, the in-the-boxing was killing me at that time. It's gotten a lot better, but I still do 98% of my mixing on the console. Well, so obviously some major purchases had to be made in order to do this. Yeah. What determined where you would put your money? Obviously, the console, that's a centerpiece. That's a, that's a, a focal point. So what was the process of, of the decision-making and or the purchasing decisions that were made? I mean, we both had resources that we brought into this thing together. I think initially we wanted a space where we could do a lot of acoustic recording. We, we do a lot of acoustic jazz records here. Mm. So we wanted to, yeah, that's, that's at least 50% of our business is like really top-notch acoustic jazz recording. So we needed a place where we could record anything from a big band to a small group and have some, some level of isolation. We've got a live room and then we have three different isolation rooms. You know, you're recording an upright bass, you can't really have that next to a drummer and the piano will have to be isolated usually if there's horns and so on and so forth. So, so we wanted to have that. Doing that in a basement's kind of tough. <laughs> you know, you're, you're dealing with, you know, six and a half foot ceilings and it's just terrible. So... But so we just wanted something that was humble, yet really as much as we could do within our budget. So the idea of getting the SSL was because at that time, we still paid a pretty penny for it, but it wasn't anything like buying one new. Oh, yeah. We knew we wanted to have that. And then the recording spaces. And we've got two control rooms, actually. So we can do two things at once. Like for Jason, his and the other control room right now, working, mixing. Because you have the SSL in Studio A, and then you have a Studio B, which is just a DAW type setup. Yeah, it's like, yeah, with like a Neve summing mixer and then a bunch of outboard gear and stuff. So over time, he sort of gravitated because of the nature of a lot of the acoustic sessions he was doing that mixing in the box with outboard gear was something that he preferred. He preferred to be able to open up, have multiple sessions going on at the same time, open and close sessions and have it pop right up exactly where he left it. Whereas other side of the coin is like a more old school where I'll like, I mix the song, it's on the board until the song's done. 
and then I move on. So that's kind of how I've been doing it, which is slower, admittedly. I'm not a fast mixer. How does one find a used SSL that doesn't break the bank? We knew it was it was going to cost a certain amount. And we, we looked at a whole bunch of options. And then we went down to Nashville and pulled this one out of a studio on Music Row that was closing. It had like eight rooms and it was an unbelievable studio. This one that we got, which is, you see it right behind me, it's an E with a bunch of GEQs and stuff. It was maintained really well. They had a, a tech staff there. And so we weren't buying something that had just been sitting in a storage room that hadn't been turned on in, in a year. Um, this, one, this one was like on working. We were able to test it. All the automation was working. The recall, the computer was working great. It was clean. And so yeah, I mean, so we flew down there and checked it all out and ended up buying this one just because it was all working as opposed to trying to buy something that wasn't, this wasn't working, that wasn't working. And then you're like trying to figure it out later. The tech on, on these consoles, I think, I think that's a misnomer that it's this constant thing. They're built pretty well and with some reasonable amount of maintenance. I mean, they can go long and hard, I think. You not only have the cost of the board itself that you're buying, but there's also the shipping aspect of it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys just bring it home? No, it, no, we had to, we had to pay like fifteen hundred bucks or something. We didn't take it apart, so they shipped it whole. It was hanging, it was suspended in this truck, like on the suspension springs things. And I just had every friend of mine that was willing to help there when it arrived, and there was like fifteen of us hauling this forty-eight channel SSL into the studio from the street, basically. Thank God you're on the ground floor. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then it didn't fit into the control room, but that's a whole other story. It didn't fit in the door. So we had to cut. <laughs> we had just completed building the, the control room, and then we get it into the lounge from the street, but it wouldn't fit through the door to get in the control room. So this guy, Lane Wince, who was our main builder for the studio, he just looked at the SSL, and he looked at the door, and he looked at the SSL, and he looked at the door, and then he looked at his sawzall, and he just picked up the sawzall and just cut a huge hole out of the wall. <laughs> and we brought it into the control room. And then he fixed it, and that was it. That's what you need. Somebody just ready to go to town with the Sawzall. Yeah. No hesitation. Yeah. I was kind of a little freaked out, but it was fine. Not to be on a, on a gear trail too much here, but the cost to run an SSL, I think there's a lot of people who are unaware that unless you make uh, great modifications or, or buy one of the atomic power supplies, the cost to run a board like that can be expensive because of the cooling that has to happen. And were you surprised at all by the leap in the power bill? Man, this is another thing that I think is is another sort of uh, myth. Well, first of all, we turn our console on and off every day. Okay. Well, every that's, day. Every yeah. day I leave, I turn the whole thing off. Okay. I, I don't turn it off to save money. I turn it off so that I can sleep at night and not be fearful that the whole studio is going to catch on fire in case, you know, something goes wrong with the console. Right. But when we design the studio, obviously we had to take that into account. So the machine room is the first thing that the air conditioning hits. So like the, you know, the air conditioning unit is in the hallway and the first place that air goes is into the machine room where the SSL power supplies are and the, the computer and all that. So it's ventilated. It's got returns in there and all that. So it's, it's really ventilated well. And then the air travels through the rest of the studio. And so, yeah, that was thought of. But well, in the beginning, we started getting pretty expensive power bills and I was nervous. And then I realized that ComEd screwed up and was charging us for two different meters, one of which wasn't ours. So as oh. soon as we figured that out, it seemed reasonable. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think if we left it on 24-7, then the AC's on 24-7, then the, everything else is on 24-7. But you know, if, if I'm leaving here at midnight and I'm not coming back until the morning, there's no reason to leave it on. Okay. Yeah, that that's kind of what my comment is based on, on a method of leaving a console on 
24-7 and constantly cooling the computer, the power supply. Right. But if you take that approach of shutting it off every night, which I've always known that there's two camps of people. There's the camp that turns the console off and there's the camp that doesn't want to turn the console off. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I just, I, I there's a really good friend of mine who's an incredible engineer. He has a 6,000. And we got the concept of powering this thing on and off every night from him. And so we started doing it and it, it doesn't create any tech issues or I'm not sure if I buy into that. It hasn't caused okay. any problems. It's been 12 years of doing that now. Have bookings over the last 13 years been fairly consistent? Yeah. You know, it, it kind of goes up and down. But what I find is with us, we have a certain amount of like long-term projects that are kind of always cooking, meaning like productions, like we're producing an artist or a band. And it's kind of a long-term investment. And then there's the quick sessions that happen. Yesterday, we had a classical pianist and two vocalists come in and they did a few hours. I was mixing while that was happening from the B room. Mm. So there's these like little short sessions and then there's the big longer productions going on. And then, then there's a lot of live tracking dates with various size groups or ensembles, so to speak. We don't really do any much, I mean, occasionally a voiceover here or there, but very rare. So we, it's mainly all original music that we do here. I'd say 95% of it's all original music. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. You know, it's my experience here in the Bay Area is that, so San Francisco has gone through a huge transformation since I've been here economically, mm -hmm. where there's just, there's so much money with all the tech companies oh, here, yeah. Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. Consequently, as many of my listeners know, many studios have closed. Studios have migrated more to the outer parts of San Francisco, to the East Bay, where Oakland and Berkeley and even further out, a lot of clubs have closed too. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, classic places have closed. And so the ability for music does still happen in San Francisco, but not to the level that I remember it happening with so, with the proliferation of so many clubs in the past. So I'm curious about Chicago and what is it going through? It's not just staying stagnant. I mean, money is is still flowing there, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's Chicago's an interesting city. I mean, it's not like New York. It's not like LA. It's 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 kind of its own thing. It's a major city, obviously. There's a lot of music in Chicago. There's a lot of lot of talented musicians and and, and artists in Chicago. Sometimes I'm literally just knocked out by what's going on here. I mean, I, I think of it as kind of a cliche, but it is kind of a blue collar town. You know, it's like a working town. So like all my friends are working musicians. So they do all types of gigs, play all styles of music. So there's a pretty decent sized scene as far as that goes. And I think there's been some club closures, but I think it's been kind of steady, I think, with that. It, it hasn't, we haven't taken a huge hit in, in that sense, so. It feels that way. From the outside looking in, it seems like studios are okay. For the most part, clubs are okay. And maybe it's a cost of living thing. I mean, everyone knows San Francisco is ridiculous yeah. in terms of its cost of living. Well, Chicago's and, gotten up there too, though. I mean, not like that, but it's definitely gone up the cost of living in Chicago. Yeah. 
especially relevant to just the concept of Midwestern living. It's yeah. it's definitely gone up. Mm-hmm. So have you guys raised your rates on a consistent basis every year or do you stay fairly steady with that? We raised, when we do like hourly sessions, we, we raised that hourly rate up $10 like three years ago. We've only raised the rates twice in 12 years. Mm-hmm. You know, our rates are pretty reasonable, I think. It does feel like there's a threshold when you have an independently financed project. You kind of know what that threshold's going to be as far as budget. And so we try to work within that. Nobody's getting rich in this business. So you got to do it because <laughs> you love it. <laughs> it's like, I'm busy all the time, but I don't know if necessarily if my bank account reflects that, but that's fine. I don't care. What do you think is, for you guys, from your perspective of being a studio owner, as well as a musician, what's important for a studio to consider for the people that it serves? I mean, ultimately, music clients, let's just say, let's just keep it narrowed down to that. What do you think that other studios, or some studios who have failed, why do they fail from your perspective? What makes a studio successful? Why, what do you guys try to do that's different? It's hard for me to say or speculate because you know that anybody that opens a studio is like really trying to do it. So it's hard to criticize any one way of doing it. But I know for Vijay and I, it goes back to sort of what I was saying when we first started talking about it all being about the music and about being able to understand all different types of music and being able to do a quartet acoustic jazz recording one day and then literally a punk rock band the next day. And then like an R&B group and then like a gospel group, like all within the same four or five days. I mean, that's our reality. And to me, I love that. I love the diversity. I love being able to work with all different types of artists. If I was just doing one genre of music all the time, I think I'd really be bored. And I hate that word bored, but I I, I would not be happy because I like that being able to skip from one to the other and, and really try to understand that music and not, if you're coming at from a point of view where you just understand this one style of music, whether it's hip hop or it's rock or it's jazz or whatever, and you can't move to what this artist needs that's completely different from what you're working on yesterday, then I think that maybe could be a problem. But being able to move, I mean, there's engineers and producers that we all admire that are really great at that. Yeah. I think that's something that will help anybody with a home studio or anything, you know. I think that's great advice, yeah. What is it about your partnership with Vijay that makes, I mean, you guys have been at this now for a while. Mm -hmm. Business relationships can go through a lot of trials and tribulations and they can fail. What has allowed you guys to stick together successfully in this business and and make it work? Man, we've known each other a long time and he's just an incredible human being. I mean, I don't know. I think it just comes down to who you are as a person and and, um, like just the level of trust you have to have within each other to do this together. Not only do I respect him musically, musically, he's one of the most, he's a genius musically. I mean, I, I don't say that lightly. And he's also an incredible human being that I trust with my life. And so I just, I think we got lucky. So we're kind of yin and yang. We're, we're different. And I think that works to our advantage. And over the years, we've learned how he likes to do things a certain way. And I like to do certain things a certain way. And we've, if there's a session, let's say he's tracking a, a group, he has his vision of how he wants to record things and mic things up and get his sounds and all that. I might do the same type of group the next day and do it differently, set them up differently. Or so I think we're just, you know, we don't have a a stock way of doing things that's, we do it the exact same way. You know, we allow each other to be individuals with our engineering and view on production and working with people and so on and so forth. So I don't know. I just think we got lucky. I got lucky. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fantastic. It's hard to, I mean, you know, you're a drummer, you, you've been in bands, you know how hard it is to keep a group of 
three, four people, five, six, you know, depending on the size of the band, everybody together and focused on the same vision. I think it's also hard just to keep two people focused on staying, yeah. staying the course together with, with a business like yours. You know, I asked Mary Masaryk about this. Because I don't deal with extreme cold weather, except when I go to visit my in-laws in Michigan, I'm always fascinated by how weather can affect a studio or an engineer in their day-to-day activities. I guess, obviously, it's a part of life there. So it's probably, this is kind of probably a goofy question, but does weather have an effect on any part of your guys' studio business life? (laughs) Well, in January, I just, I don't want to get out of bed. Let's put it that way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My God, last winter, there was a a polar vortex, they call it. And it was like, if you're in Minneapolis, I have some friends that live in Minneapolis. They're used to this. Every winter, it's like negative 20 every day. But for us, it was unbelievably cold. And I was worried about pipes freezing in the building and all this stuff. And so it was pretty stressful for like about a two-week period there. Well, I can't remember if it was February or March or whatever. But I mean, other than that, I think everybody in Chicago or New York or whatever, kind of used to the ups and downs of the weather. I walked out today, it's Halloween, there's snow on the ground. I mean, what's up with that? It's crazy. <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> Utterly disappointing. <laughs> I know. Bizarre. Bizarre is right. And people say climate yeah. change isn't real, but that's a whole other story. When it comes to cold winters and polar vortexes and pipes freezing, are there methods you guys use to protect the assets of not only yourself, like your equipment, but also your clients' files or any of that? Well, everything is obviously backed up multiple places and in the cloud and all that. But what's what's interesting is the studio is we overbuilt it. So the only heat we have in here are two baseboard heaters in the lounge but in none of the recording spaces we have no heat because it's so insulated that as soon as you turn the lights on and the gear on it's like fine so it's nice and cozy in here Mm. in the winter (laughs) we actually run the ac all year long believe it or not because the way it's set up there's some issue like we we have to be able to run it like the gear will get hot and we need to be able to have the air coming in even if it's zero degrees outside and i know it doesn't really make any sense but unless we were to open all the the doors and stuff we can't do that in the middle of recording session so we just run the air all year long so in here it stays nice and cozy as far as files and that kind of stuff i mean we just do what everybody has to do it's backed up in multiple locations i have Backup drives at home, Vijay does. We have them here. We It's in the cloud, so on and so forth. So, Have you ever been impacted at the studio by crime? I mean, I had a brick thrown through my car window one time. <laughs> <laughs> but not the studio itself. And, and a dude's shoe. I found a dude's shoe and a brick. Wow, yeah, that's the so ultimate Somehow, insult. like, the brick and the shoe went through at the same time. I don't know how that worked, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. That was one time, like, when we were building the studio. So no, okay. it's, 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 this area is it's pretty solid. How do people find out about you? Is it mostly word of mouth or do you actually promote in any, in any other way? I'd say most of our business, I mean, 80%, maybe, maybe more, I think has been word of mouth and repeat clients. And then occasionally I'll, I'll like do a Facebook promotional ad here and there, nothing big. But other than that, no, we don't, we haven't really advertised. We have our website. I guess that you can look it up, but that's sorely not updated. We got to update that thing. 
What about work-life balance? You mentioned that you you have a daughter. Mm-hmm. Are you a workaholic? Have you figured out a way to to keep everybody happy? Well, I mean, I have my daughter half the time. She's with me half the time. So there's two weeks out of every month that she's totally of the priority to me. So everything kind of takes a backseat to that. I just try to work around that as much as I can. When she's not with me, I just try to really pack it in. Obviously, I can work in the day when she's at school, but I mean, I have to leave here on a school day and you know, I have to leave the studio no later than three o'clock to pick up from right. the bus. So those days are cut short. And you know, then when I have gigs, I can leave her with my mother or something like that. But yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a new reality and, and I kind of dig it. I could work every day probably. There's a lot of us that could, but I, I don't, I don't want to work all the time, frankly. I like getting away a little bit. Yeah. How do you manage it with your clients when you know you're going to have to leave at three? Because I've been there before. Mm-hmm. Because I have two kids and yeah. I'd be like, okay, it's two o'clock, got to wrap it up. I try to be upfront about it. Like like people know, like on these days during the week, like I'm done at three. And so everybody's been pretty understanding, I think, for the most part. If I've got like a big tracking session going on, yeah, I can have, there's another guy that works with us, one of our staff engineers, Tyler, Tyler Rice, who's great. He'll just step in and continue tracking if it's just a straight up recording thing. But if I'm producing a session, I mean, obviously I need to be there for that. In which case we have to schedule. The scheduling is the is the biggest nightmare with I think what we do. Just yeah, everybody's schedule. The the artists, the you know, the clients, the studios. That's my biggest source of stress, I think. You guys opened the studio, was it two thousand six? Well, twelve years ago, so two thousand and seven. Okay. Twelve or thirteen years ago, something like that. Yeah. All yeah. right. So right around the time of, of the recession. Yeah. Um yeah. how did you get through that? Pure naivete, I don't know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't know. I think that we just thought that, you know, we just look at it like every time we do something, we just really try to do our best. And if, if so that I think that we'll have work even in struggling times. People aren't going to stop. They're going to continue to write songs. They're going to continue to want to document their music, their art. That's going to happen in a recession or not, I think. I can't imagine art stopping in its tracks. Yeah. The creation of art or whatever. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Do you all, as a practice, as a studio, sock away money for the times that people are continually talking about the next recession, Mm -hmm. the potential of of another recession? Are you guys planning for a potential scenario where that happens and work kind of gets cut in half or if not more? I mean, we don't have like a specific plan for that. I don't know. I just think we have to, we'd have to just find a way to weather that storm when it happens. 
what we found is like even that time when we first opened, it was the economy was tanking, right? It was terrible. We were busy. So I do think that like art is people are going to want to work on their music and on their art, no matter what. There might be some months where it's lean, where it's me and Vijay aren't making a lot of money, but then it gets made up for, you know, in some other months. So it's kind of like a up and down. You just got to look at the average and stuff. Yeah. Do you foresee just staying in the place you're at long term for as long as you you can? Or do you kind of have your eyes on something far off in the distance that you're thinking, okay, maybe at some point I'll do something slightly different? Oh, man, I'm never building a studio again. (laughs) No way. (laughs) This is it. Yeah. This is it. This is this is 100% it. I think the fantasy of building a studio and the reality of building a studio are two completely different things. Barring any something I can't see happening on the horizon, I don't think we're going anywhere. I can't, I can't imagine trying to build another place. What do you think's important in building a studio? Now, knowing what you know now, what you've been through, <laughs> if I were to say, hey, Steven, I'm going to build, I want to build a studio. What are your thoughts? A silent HVAC system is very important, which thankfully we have. That is a huge deal to have it just be silent and just air to fall into a room and not hear mm. that. Sight lines so musicians can see each other, super important. What are the overlooked things? I mean, and those are two great things. But <laughs> they're, they're, they're very like, okay, that's really exciting, but they're super important. No, no. Yeah. But it, but very important. The, H, the HVAC, of course, I think that's... Yeah. Our HVAC system was designed by Jeffrey Pizzotti, the lead singer in this band called Naked Raygun. He designed Steve Albini's system, and we got so lucky being introduced to him to do this because he did it right. Because, you know, Vijay and I didn't know. Like, we, we probably would have done it completely different and it would have been a nightmare, you know? The guy who built our studio was the main guy, you know, that we looked to for all this technical stuff going on in building the studio, introduced us to Jeff, and Jeff did it right, designed it correctly. I think a lot of people forget that there's a, a whole list of things, I think, that people say, oh, I want to build a studio, but then they forget beyond the gear. They don't think of things like the right HVAC system mm-hmm. or you know, the the infrastructure that is important to keep the workflow happening. Mm-hmm. So any other thoughts on that? Any other <laughs> items on that list others should consider? Because I know that for the listeners, there's a ton of, of them out there who are like, I'm going to build a studio. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like Vijay and I were working in our basements when we started and we were getting good work done. As soon as we had the studio built, it was pretty obvious to me, oh, this control room sounds really like this is what it should sound like. Like I'm not hearing standing waves. I'm not hearing all this flutter, you know, like, like this is correct. And now I can really hear now and I can mix and dim on the console, super quiet and really hear everything. And, but Vijay and I were pretty naive to the, like sort of the really deep technical ins and outs of it in the beginning. And we just serendipitously hooked up with this guy, Lane Wentz, who had built the Capricorn room at the old Chicago tracks. He was building my friend Ray Nima's studio kind of at the same time. And so we met Lane and he knew what he was talking about and we hired him. And And then our relationship with this guy, Ray Nima, who's knew all this technical stuff that we kind of knew, but didn't really know. We just learned a lot from these two guys. And thankfully it all kind of came together at just the right time. Because if we hadn't have met Lane and we, Vijay and I had our own sort of like blueprints laid out of the studio and we had our own version of it. And then Lane came in and just like completely did it right. <laughs> you know? Big X across. <laughs> He's like, no, that's crazy. <laughs> did it right. So we got really lucky in that sense. And we trusted him and we just let him roll. Just do what you got to do. And we just listened to him and 
just learned as much as we can, asked a lot of questions and did as much research as we could on our own. But I mean, unless you've done it before, it's really, you know, you're going to make some pretty key mistakes, I think. And so therefore, by having these guys, Lane and the, our friend Ray, who would chime in with questions that we had, we lucked out with that. Lots of consulting, lots of professional input seems to be the key before putting out any money to build a studio. I'd have to agree. You can get away with a lot without any thought behind it. But I think in this situation that we're in with different clients coming in and people's expectations and all that, it has to be a certain level, I think, technically. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you and the studio and Vijay? Well, I mean, our website, transientsound.com, okay. which I will try to update. It hasn't been updated in a few years, but you can see some of the clients that have been through here and some photos of the studio and sound clips. We have a Facebook page, Transient Sound Recording Studio, Instagram, at Transient Sound. Yeah. Those are the primary food groups. Yeah, I guess so these days, right? Yeah. I will include links in the show notes audience for all of that so you can check out exactly what we're talking about. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. It's yet another audio pro in Chicago. There just seems to be an enormous amount of them. Hey, so. man, it's, it's an honor to be on your show. So thank you very much. Go Chicago. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll chat with you later. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Stephen Gillis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to thank everybody that helped out with the show. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and the smooth, silky voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the beginning. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, spread the word, tell all your friends who like podcasts and those who don't. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.